You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Kennedy gets better the more you study. He's a much more interesting story, and liberal, moderate, conservative doesn't do it justice. Your book reveals... The road to Camelot you know, may have been a slightly darker road. He was more affable on the surface, but underneath it was, uh, was, was a lot of steel. We mentioned LBJ, so let's talk about him because <laughs> everybody loves to talk about LBJ. <laughs> the point we were trying to make was that on the fly, mm-hmm. these guys invented modern politics. I'm joined today by Thomas Oliphant. He is the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, was a political reporter at the Boston Globe for 40 years, and is the author of four books. Madeleine Albright called him the Will Rogers of our times. He is the author of The Road to Camelot, Inside JFK's Five-Year Campaign. It's published by Simon & Schuster. And it's published at the time that we are airing this podcast. You can go out and get it. I highly recommend it. He co-authored the book with Curtis Wilkie, former colleague at the Boston Globe and a teacher of journalism at the University of Mississippi. And Tom joins me on the program today. Tom, thanks for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. My pleasure, Bruce, and I hope it can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the great thing about um, your book and and the subject area that it covers, and for this podcast in in particular, is people who listen to my cast, they're going to know many of the characters that you're talking about. I guess the the best way I would explain it is my listeners are great. Like, they'll they'll know who Estes Kefauver is. It's not the answer to a trivia question in a bar room, right? <laughs> exactly. They remember that they know the man in the coonskin cap and uh, and all of that. Uh-huh. Uh, so, and and if they don't, they're the, the type of people that at least read something close to it, or will will get the fact. Well, bless their heart, and may their tribe increase. <laughs> Your book talks about Kennedy's run for the presidency eh, from 1955 onward. And the image of Kennedy that that we have now at 100, generally speaking, I would say for a lot of my listeners is that of a great liberal hero. Not all of them, but for a good majority, we have that very nice image of him. Your book reveals that the road to Camelot you know, may have been a slightly darker road than that, perhaps. Kennedy's trading favors with Southerners to get the VP nomination in 1956. He goes to Mississippi to get the kind of stamp of approval from Southerners. He votes for an amendment in the Civil Rights Bill that denied blacks the right to a judge trial in civil rights cases, which is something that civil rights leaders wanted 
uh, he votes against that. Shouldn't we be thinking of Kennedy sometimes more as Kennedy the moderate, the one who Truman even disliked at times, and Kennedy the moderate who beat liberals like Humphrey and Symington? Not to mention Adlai Stevenson. Who was probably really the darling at that time. And he the hero of... and the darling and couldn't quite let go. Uh, but listen, you make an excellent point. I, I might quibble with some of the specifics. Mm-hmm. But part of what makes Kennedy so much fun and such a challenge is you really get in trouble when you try to pigeonhole him. The more Curtis and I researched Bruce, Mm-hmm. the more interesting Kennedy became just because he's not a stick figure. I mean, yeah, I think at bottom he was uh, uh, to the left of center, certainly should be called a liberal, just not as liberal as you think. Um, he had, he was particularly tight as a tick on fiscal policy. He tended to be uh, reluctant to spend money. He had some votes early in his congressional career. It really got him in trouble when he was trying to get on Stevenson's ticket in 1956, particularly with regard to agriculture. Um, He was a cold warrior. Right. Um, The the real thing, (laughs) Um, but a different kind. Uh, The columnist uh, uh, and friend, Joe Alsop, uh, once described Kennedy, pardon my French, as Adlai Stevenson with Ball. One of the reasons, I think, the occasion of his 100th birthday this month is a good time to encourage more research, not less, is that Kennedy gets better the more you study. He's a much more interesting story, and liberal, moderate, conservative doesn't do it justice. The term he liked to use, we discovered, Mm. was pragmatic liberal. Pragmatic liberal. Um, That's fair. One question he always asked, was what will work, what will pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he had a consistent record from the very beginning of his career in Congress uh, in that first fight in 1946. He was perfectly willing to trim around the edges in order to move the arrow forward. Uh, that's, that's what I understand him to have meant by the term pragmatic. Uh, it's true to, Truman didn't like him, but it was personal, not political. And he also thought he was too young, and he had his own horse in Stuart Symington. And he doesn't come close to Hubert Humphrey on a question like civil rights. And where the Cold War was concerned, he was much more of a fighter than Adlai Stevenson was. So uh, 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 I've always found it, and later, uh, after the president was murdered, uh, it was dangerous to do the same with Bob Kennedy and then Edward Kennedy. Uh, if there's a Kennedy Democrat alive, a spirit of it anyway, it's this uh, uh, not as liberal as you think. I think that's uh, right. Even with uh, Ted Kennedy, saw oh, yes. him working with Bush at different times on the education. Oh, he did it on public school education. Mm-hmm. And frankly, if you look at, I mean, he is the father of the health care system we have today, give or take a nuance. And the whole uh, story is of the moderation of his original position in favor of civil single payer in 1970. Classic Kennedy evolution. One of the quotes that I like in this book is you quote Robert Kennedy as saying that, oh, liberals are just in love with death. 
mm-hmm. meaning that they they'd rather go out with the charge of the light brigade fighting uh, for the cause than uh, to win. When when you got under Bob Kennedy's skin. And in 1960, that tended to get you an elbow to the face. <laughs> um, a lot of people have that image of Robert Kennedy, to jump to him for a second, of that, uh, the, the speech in Indianapolis right after Martin Luther King's death and that kind of... Well, yes, but, but he was still the other Robert. I mean, again, mm-hmm. they're all fascinating because they're not easily pigeonholed. I remember... In the Indiana, that same primary in 1968, where where he made that amazing uh, uh, speech right after the news of Martin Luther King's murder, um, uh, we you know we always used to compose a little song making fun of the candidate at the end of a long campaign day, mm-hmm. and we did one for Bob Kennedy to the tune of the Wabash Cannonball, only we called it the Ruthless Cannonball. (laughs) And he didn't like it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I wouldn't imagine. (laughs) He had this way of glaring at you that made you want to hide under your bed. Kennedy was more affable. And and in, in our research, we kept discovering that he had, I mean, he could be tough as nails. One of the things that I was surprised to learn was how he just refused to let anything pass. If you threw an elbow at him, you were likely to get one right back. And journalists, too, by the way. Now, that's RFK or that's going to JFK? JFK. Mm-hmm. Um, um, he, he was more affable on the surface, but underneath it was, uh, was, was a lot of steel. And one of the hallmarks of his politics we kept discovering is that he just did not let anything pass. Well, we we went into depth on a couple of uh, tiffs that he got into in the late 50s uh, when he was running in secret as opposed to in public. Uh, One with Mike Wallace and Drew Pearson on who wrote Profiles and Courage, and the other with Eleanor Roosevelt on how much money his father was spending. And I I was fascinated just to see how uh, his operating philosophy was nobody takes a poke at me and gets away with it. In a way, that's almost like uh, as one could say that about the current president. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> though uh, I think it's funny. Kennedy did most of it behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, okay. We, but, yeah. we would run in the files, uh, uh, these voluminous files. We kept running into these notes. And if if you wrote something nice about something he did, particularly columnists now I'm talking about who were much more influential in those days, there'd be a recognition note from Kennedy. If you uh, if you uh, banged him for doing something, you'd also hear from him. Um, and I was just struck at how obviously geared up he was to watch very carefully and not to let anything pass. It's a hallmark of a good politician. Uh, right, a, a politician that's going to win. And and your book, by the way, I'm talking with Tom Oliphant, the author of The Road to Camelot Inside JFK's Five-Year Campaign. I, I find it interesting that uh, you, you talk about a, a winner, a, a, a political professional, a winner, not just somebody who we might have the image of today who's just making some great speeches, but a, um, a political innovator and a, a winner, one of uh, the reviews of this book says, an excellent chronicle of JFK's innovations, his true personality, 
and how close he came to losing. Yeah. You know, uh, Bruce, one vow that Curtis and I made to each other after the long period of research was over and when we were just beginning to write was we vowed to keep our violins in the storage closet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I mean, yeah, he could be uh, amazingly eloquent, enough to make your jaw drop all the time. But um, to try to delve into the story of how the hell this improbable event happened, how did he emerge and how did he become president, it's very, it was very important to us to look at Kennedy with our eyes open. And as I said earlier, he's more interesting that way. Oh, yes, I, and I think more <laughs> useful for current history because otherwise, um, and this is one of the tenets of, of this podcast that moving forward, is otherwise if we're not looking at, at history that way, then it, it, you end up having an imbalance where current politics, it's like, oh, these guys are just a bunch of... Uh, you know, uh, mean spirited or or bozos, or and and in the past we had such demigods. <laughs> well, one of the virtues of history is that you can't say something like that and stand up to scrutiny very long. <laughs> Not even close. You know, his daughter, um, Ambassador Caroline Kennedy, said uh, recently, typically correctly that her father's time in the public square is slowly but surely slipping into history. Interesting. I think she's bought on. Mm. But as that happens, I hope the standards go up uh, and that people willing to do the serious research are going to have a little bit more sway in the public square than they have over the last 60 years. I mean, I understand the commercial appeal and and all the rest of it. I'm benefiting from it, I guess, if you think about it. But um, uh, but there's been too much. Uh, Kennedy's almost been too easy. Mm-hmm. And perhaps because he was martyred. Well, per- that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, celebrity, um, um, uh, etc. They're responsible for some of it, you know. But, and and it's very important to me, history makes him much more interesting than the stick figure. I mean, I've, I've thought that over the last couple of generations, you could get away with stuff where Kennedy was concerned mm-hmm. that would never pass muster if the subject were, say, Millard Fillmore. Right. <laughs> All right? <laughs> you, you can't, you know, speculate like that about Millard Fillmore. Right. Did he poison uh, Zachary Taylor or not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> One thing Curtis and I were very upfront about admitting is we're not historians. I really respect that profession. It's exacting. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried to follow old-fashioned journalistic standards, Um but uh, but I think in the last 60 years, Kennedy has almost been too easy. And the best birthday present on his 100th uh, in May, I think, <laughs> would be to have the bar go up uh, and to encourage more research. You know, one of the things we found, uh, you know, there are research libraries all over the country, of course, that are relevant to this topic. And that we, we still have found a few people who were there who we could talk to but um the 
just at the Kennedy Library alone in Boston, there are 23 million pieces of paper in that joint. Wow. And we just, and, and including more than 1,600 detailed oral histories about him uh, uh, from people who knew him and worked with him. Well, what we discovered was that this gold mine has barely been touched. We were bumping into stuff all the time. And new stuff becomes available all the time, particularly after he became president because of declassification, but also because a lot of people's papers are only now being archived. So it's a, it is a wide open field, and I hope more people who are willing to do the grunt work get into it. So it'll be a better uh, image of him. I mean, one of the sources I've always uh, uh, looked at is uh, uh, Richard Reeves, uh, President Kennedy. Ah, oh, bless his heart. <laughs> and one of the things he said is that it was actually a good time period for it to go back and do historical research because of a very simple thing. The carbon paper that was in the typewriters at the time produced often one, two, or three, you know, the old triplicate copy uh-huh. And many times, one and two were destroyed, but three survived. That's right. That's right. We we kept running into things in one person's voluminous files, say Larry mm-hmm. O'Brien, that actually should have been in Kenny O'Donnell's files, but weren't. Ah. And that's an example of the carbon paper, but it's also an example of how you can't get by just looking at Kenny O'Donnell's files. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. It has to be more comprehensive than that. But at any rate, what we kept discovering uh, was that uh, this uh, trove of documentary evidence for the historical record has barely been touched. And anybody, uh, the younger ones, should uh, really feel emboldened to tackle this. And it's as if, you know, to steal a line from Kennedy, it's time for the torch to pass to a new generation of historians. we got to get Rick Perlstein on it. Uh, now you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> he was ahead of his time in a lot of ways. Obviously, the TV, that's kind of known. It was interesting that your book reveals that Kennedy wrote an article for TV Guide. That's how into it he was. But he also used polls, and he hired Lou Harris and used yeah. polls to make decisions that yeah. opponents probably had no idea deciding right. to go into the New Hampshire primary, the Wisconsin primary. He's looking at poll data. Yeah. West Virginia was a really tough one, or how he brokered the endorsement in Ohio, even as he was announcing his plans on Wisconsin and West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um uh, you know, Lou Harris, rest his soul, he just died last year, you know. Uh, he lived well into his 90s and was sharp as a tack almost to the end. Um, and, but what, what, uh, what, what the point we were trying to make was that on the fly, mm-hmm. these guys invented modern politics. It was a kind of, uh, maybe you'd call it like a kind of political radar that his opponents <laughs> couldn't even know of that he he you know he knew what to do the best exa- example of this uh, one potentially viable candidate in mm-hmm. 1960 that we spent a lot of time on was Stuart Symington of Missouri you know successful family enterprise in electronics uh Harry Truman's first secretary of the air force 
genuinely distinguished senator opponent of Joe McCarthy. He was a legitimate name in 1960. Civil rights liberal? Yeah, basically. Um, uh, and central casting potential president with the white hair and the deep voice and all the rest of it. But, and in 1959, we discovered that he traveled around the country almost as frantic, frenetically as Kennedy did. But, but what his key people kept noticing everywhere they went is, uh, as one put it in a, in, a, in, a, in a remembrance for us, uh, that Kennedy had already been there, usually more than once. Ah, coming to the party late. <laughs> Even in 1959, he mm-hmm. was late. And uh, as a result, Symington fell back to a strategy uh, that was based on a brokered convention. Yes. And, and, of course, one of the things that's hard to get across in 2017, Bruce, is that brokered convention was not some quixotic uh, dream in 1960. That was the reality. Right. It was most likely that uh, so many, you talk about in the, and it, and it is one of those things, um, I believe you have to explain to 2017 uh, listeners, you talk a lot in a book about the dynamics of like uh, favorite son candidates and how often <laughs> right. that, and you had to negotiate those if you were a candidate. Yeah. Kennedy would never have won on an early ballot. And he never would have been nominated if he hadn't won on an early ballot unless he was able to persuade and or muscle potential favorite sons out of the race. This is one area where Lou Harris's work uh, has been generally unsung. He often used polls to explain to guys in their states, and Ohio is a very good example, that if you don't get out of the way, I'm going to run over you like a steamroller in a primary. He would show it to the opponents. Yeah. Uh, Our favorite example, because uh, the documentation was unusually detailed that we could find, was Ohio. And they showed the governor at the time, Mike DeSalle, uh, Lou Harris's polls that had him beating DeSalle in a primary like two to one in late 1959. And even by then, uh, he was miles ahead. And DeSalle didn't want to run and get beat in his own state. Um, and as a result, probably the most significant public announcement right after Kennedy formally entered the race in January of 1960 was Mike DeSalle folding his tent, and Kennedy got every single one of Ohio's delegates. Amazing. and, and Before he'd even started. <laughs> and that happens in uh, Nebraska, I believe, and, yeah. and many other, where he had no business winning, really. you know. I don't want to go too far into the weeds, though uh, something tells me your listeners aren't afraid of that. No, no, go with the weeds. But long before it was chic, Kennedy discovered, or and his people, including a couple whose names uh, shouldn't be lost to history, but he discovered how you could use the state convention process to get support and not wait until the convention and the smoke-filled rooms. In other words, uh, to pick the obvious example, he discovered Iowa 15 years before the rest of the country did. 
Um, and he had outside party channels, mm-hmm. people running for delegate in precincts and county conventions and congressional district conventions who were supporters of his. And enough of them got elected, so he got two-thirds of the Iowa delegation in Los Angeles. And um, basically, that's the system that got discovered by, allegedly discovered by Jimmy Carter. But Kennedy had figured it out long before. He did the same thing in Arizona. He did it in Nebraska. Um, and, uh, and so even though two-thirds roughly don't hold me to the number, two-thirds mm-hmm. roughly of the delegates in 1960 were not selected in primaries. A majority of them were selected in what amounted to primaries. And that was the little extra wrinkle that Kennedy put in his campaign, and it makes the difference between winning on the first ballot and not winning on the first ballot. Well, it's a, it's amazing reading uh, your book, which is The Road to Canelot Inside JFK's Five-Year Campaign. And I'm talking with Thomas Oliphant, political reporter for the Boston Globe, and the author, along with Curtis Wilkie, who is a former colleague at the Boston Globe and teacher of journalism at the University of uh, Mississippi. Your book gives an account of what we just seem to see a lot in history. You mentioned Jimmy Carter before, and in 1976, we kind of saw this. Perhaps we saw it in 2007. We, we certainly seem to see it in, in the last election, where a candidate just starts early, gains all of this momentum, and then there are people running in the election year who think they will still have a chance. It just seems to keep <laughs> happening over and over again. <laughs> I know. The, uh, I think Mr. Yogi Berra had an observation <laughs> that sums this one up, right? It's deja vu all over again. <laughs> um, I don't know why that continues to be the case, but Kennedy's the pioneer. Uh, and it started happening, we discovered in our research, in his first run for Congress in 1946. The way he liked to put it was, you start very early before anyone else has, and you accept the fact that the big shots and the big pros are not going to be with you, and you work around them. Um, uh, he called them the non-professionals, and that's how he jumped out ahead of a huge field for Congress in 1946, and that's why he caught the rest of the field asleep in 1960. Was it the influence of the father? Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. Well, this was another surprise for us. And again, this is why um, maybe a a new generation of researchers can shed more light on Mm -hmm. this amazing story. Um, Contrary to myth, uh, I mean, this family was as tight as a family can be. They loved their father. Absolutely no question about that. And they welcomed the money. Though, uh, uh, 
you know, in the general election with Nixon, about all the money did was give them a rare level playing field against the Republicans. But they welcomed the money, but they almost never followed and usually ignored their father's very loud uh, advice uh, and analysis. He was old school. He right. believed if you if you got to twenty people, you got the nomination, uh, and and actually thought that way about the general election too. And they did use him in. Uh, I thought that was interesting in your book. They did use him in California. He he did the sit down a little bit, but you know, there's an interesting story. Uh, it's uh, it, again, it's early when nobody was looking. 1959, and uh, Joe Kennedy was, I think, in somewhere around Lake Tahoe, and decides he'd love to have uh, supper uh, with the new governor of California, Pat Brown, <laughs> um, at which, given his contributions, is easy to arrange. But in their dinner, it begins to dawn on Joe Kennedy that he has nothing to talk about that his son is already deeply involved in California's uh, process, um, that there's a whole bunch of stuff going on that he doesn't know about, and he really doesn't have anything to put on the, put on the pile. Um, it, it's sort of a poignant moment where I think it may have become clear to the old man um, that, uh, you know, God knows he loved his sons and, and, and backed them to the hilt, but um, but his influence was tiny. And, of course, they disagreed on nearly every public policy issue you can think of, foreign and domestic. Yeah, Kennedy's pushing things like, even though he mentioned that on certain, like, civil rights, uh, obviously McCarthy, there was a little bit of moderation, might be the best way to describe uh, JFK's approach, but things like Medicare and federal support oh. for education he was well, early out on what you know in in studying uh, uh one of the most important relationships in modern american political history and that is ted Sorensen, whom kennedy loved to call his intellectual blood bank and kennedy what, what you what we discovered was kennedy you know approached this race say, in late 1956, well aware that one of his drawbacks, besides his age, was the fact that he had a very thin record uh, in politics as a congressman and as a senator. And the only hope he had to counter that impression, which was based on truth, was to examine the major issues of the day and speak to them with authority. Um, uh, and that's what he and Sorensen did. And it didn't matter what uh, subject they tackled, whether it was poverty or nuclear weapons or medical care for the elderly. Uh, they did it in enough depth so that Kennedy was articulating positions that made it seem like he'd been the, in the center of the uh, action for years, when in truth he hadn't been. Um, and and um, uh, what helped them was the fact that Kennedy had a had a curious, inquisitive mind. He read voraciously. He loved talking policy with 
advisors. He didn't have a guru. Uh, he was more of a shopper. But if you you can pick any one of these positions and see how he managed to make it his own, uh, and to and in uh, uh, talking about some of these questions in the campaign, the impression the public got was of a guy who was ready to be president. Well, he comes out against France on the Algerian policy. Really, isn't that a... Well, now, that's a rare example Mm -hmm. of something that occurred entirely inside Kennedy's head. Um, And uh, from this distance, it's very hard to underline just how controversial his stand was. For an American politician in the really rough days of the Cold War, to take on a fellow NATO ally about anything was a huge deal. Kennedy caught a lot of flack for it. I don't think Stevenson was happy. No, no, no. no. The, the entire Democratic and Republican foreign policy worlds were aghast at what he'd done. But uh, this is a case where you can see Kennedy approaching an issue on his own with a little bit of history. You know, he had gone against the French before. As early as 1950, he was in Asia, including a place called Vietnam. And in talking to people in a trip to Asia in 1951, before he, just before he ran for the Senate, he kept running to this, into this proposition that you can't prop up a colonial regime if the people of the affected country are not going to stand up and fight for themselves. And so he, he was opposed to intervening on behalf of the French in Vietnam, and he was opposed to intervening on behalf of the, or supporting the French in trying to maintain the last vestiges of their empire in Algeria. Um, and, uh, and he also saw the demise of the colonial empires as one of the great hopeful trends post-World War II. That's Kennedy. Um, and um, uh, he had help, but uh, he didn't, you know, this wasn't a policy position he could take off the shelf. He had to develop it himself. Uh, and it's a wonderful subject to study so you can see his mind at work. And what we discovered uh, was that it was him. It wasn't some, as I say, there was no Henry Kissinger on this one. Interesting, because you had mentioned before that uh, you want a new generation of historians to go through some of the troves and 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 look more. Kenny, this is an interesting point that I hadn't been aware of about uh, his early experience with Vietnam, because the more you find out, the more it adds to the current question. There, for instance, there's a big uh, debate, and a lot of people just go ahead and say it without much, I've always thought, not much proof that, oh, if Kennedy was still alive, he would have pulled us out of Vietnam. And I've always dismissed that because I've seen Kennedy more as a centrist, as you as you kind of do in, in your book. But this, something like that, at least adds a new piece of information. Yeah. Without arguing the point dogmatically, Bruce, right. let me just say that you can follow the breadcrumbs on Vietnam from 1950, roughly, mm-hmm. uh, all the way to the moment when he was murdered. And they all lead you to this idea that you cannot do for another country what it won't do for itself. 
Um, and so the, uh, I think the best way to phrase this mm. is to ask whether Kennedy would have committed, what, 500,000 American soldiers, mm. not to mention our Air Force and whatever, to that sad conflict. Right, a scale and the scope. The answer is there isn't one way in hell he would have. Good point. Um, all of his orientation was in the other direction. You have to think of Johnson as having Americanized that war. And beginning in 1950, you can see John Kennedy adamantly opposed to Americanizing these sorts of situations. Now, it's true that when he was president, he went from a few hundred to 16,000 American advisors. But the, the deeper question is, would he have continued and put 500,000 in? And the answer is clearly no way. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we mentioned LBJ, so let's talk about him because everybody loves to talk about LBJ. <laughs> My listeners love him, love to talk about him. Of let's course. <laughs> well, call Carol up and get him to finish that last volume. I know, I know. He's, uh, he's got to. He's simply got to. Uh, he he said got it, to. <laughs> he says it will be quicker. He says it will be quicker than the last, but we'll see. Uh, uh, Please. <laughs> uh, but one of those opponents uh, that he beat in these primaries, yeah. always in the in the the distance. I think you 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 say the spectral image of him, which I I think yeah. is, uh, hovers over this fifty nine period and nineteen sixty yeah. period. Yeah. Any thoughts on why Lyndon Johnson just seemed so lethargic in nineteen sixty? Yeah. I mean, he waited to the last minute. Um, he sends yeah. money to West Virginia to be used against Kennedy. It's almost just. Too little, too late. Can I defer to the great Carol on one element of this question? Sure. And that is, um, there seems to have been, if not a fear of losing in a primary, uh, an unwillingness to stick his neck out where he could have lost. You know, the difference between Kennedy and Johnson in 1959 and 60 is that Kennedy was fully aware this thing was impossible to even think about if he didn't enter and win every single primary. Johnson, in the culture of 1960, could objectively imagine a convention nominating him regardless of what happened in a few primaries. It wasn't an unrealistic assumption but he was adamant every time he had a chance to enter one or two or three, he pulled back. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, you know, one of the things we discovered is that before Kennedy began making his decisions about things like Wisconsin and West Virginia and Ohio, he felt he had to know what Johnson was going to do, and he sent his brother down to the ranch. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh... And Bob Kennedy endured deer hunting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny to to look at the two totally different recollections of that 
secret visit by Bob Kennedy. It's funny, the Johnson people all talk about LBJ giving, uh, playing a gag on Bob Kennedy and giving Mm -hmm. him a big shotgun instead of a deer rifle, and the first shot knocked him back on his ass. (laughs) (laughs) That's the story. um, And, of course, from the Kennedy perspective, you have Bob Kennedy talking about you know, Johnson standing up with a beer in one hand and a rifle in the other and shooting out of his car and, you know, whatever. Um, But more importantly, Kennedy wanted to know if Johnson would enter any primaries. And Bob Kennedy came back with the clear answer that whatever, however Johnson would loom eventually as the major opponent, and they always saw him that way, uh, he was not going to enter any of the primaries. But yet he does uh, join up with the ticket, and that is a, I think, remains a big oh, boy. <laughs> political mystery. Why? <laughs> you know why? Well, again, this still maybe needs a little more work, but we found enough mm-hmm. to suggest that maybe uh, we all ought to rethink uh, the uh, how Johnson came to be vice president. There's no question we found material making clear that at the last minute Kennedy did not want to do this on the merits, Mm -hmm. that he and his brother alone decided they didn't want him because they couldn't trust him. All that enmity in the past, um, as well as uh, some analysis of Johnson as he was in 1960, they did not want him. However, JFK... you know, there's what we there's a long series of interviews that Bob Kennedy did after his brother was murdered. Um, he did it did them on the condition that they not be made public until his own death. Of course, not realizing it was just a few years uh, away. And there's God, there's about sixteen hundred pages of these interviews, uh, Bruce. Wow. And buried in the middle of them is a very clear narrative from Bob Kennedy about that morning in Los Angeles. And that after they batted it back and forth, the two of them, Mm -hmm. Bob Kennedy called it the most indecisive moments of the entire campaign. They made their judgment that they just didn't want him. But JFK had a condition. Johnson had to be happy, not just satisfied, happy with an alternative role um, going forward. And Bob Kennedy said, I couldn't find one. Um, And so they took him, but they did so reluctantly. And from his Um, point of view, I think some of the standard, and it is Robert Kerr, I think, informing probably our best informant of the 37 different eyewitness accounts of of all the (laughs) up and down in the hotel yes (laughs) but uh you know i i I got so confused the only way i could mentally deal with this was i i don't know about you but i've stayed at the biltmore eight million times and i went i tried to go up and down the back stairs to try to (laughs) see if i could visualize what was going on and i was still fundamentally confused but it's heavily influenced by the Johnson side of this, which doesn't reach this question of what the Kennedy brothers decided. There's only one other one person who was still alive who talked about it. There are 
Johnson related accounts that uh, seemed to uh, imply, but not directly say, that Kennedy was ready to choose Johnson and that Bob Kennedy tried to subvert that. Uh, Bob Kennedy addresses this, again, buried in the Mm -hmm. 1,600 pages. And he says, what? So I was going to go downstairs just to blow up my brother's decision? You know, I never went against my brother in my life, and I wasn't going to start then, for Christ's sake, and and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, what we discovered is that the reluctance to pick Johnson was real, the decision not to want him was real, uh, and as Bob Kennedy said, they just couldn't make it work. But maybe without him, they don't win the South. Uh, you do. Well, now you talk about yeah. uh, the 1960 <laughs> general election in your book. And hello, <laughs> good for you. Now, Bob Kennedy addressed this too, flat out. Could you have won the election without him? Answer: No. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now, maybe you know who. Don't forget. Uh, and the history lovers in your audience will, I hope, agree with me. You never know for sure. Be careful about what you assume. But I think the consensus that Johnson was essential to Kennedy's election is, as near as I can tell, universal. Well, the Texas alone is an important state. um, And you talk about something that isn't talked a lot about, the the Adolphus Hotel (laughs) incident. Good for you. (laughs) Thank you. We had a lot of fun finding little episodes in this long story that had been forgotten and shouldn't have been, that probably had something to do with the result. Texas was nip and tuck all the way through the general election. Uh, Lou Harris, who didn't do national polling, he did key states Mm -hmm. in the general election. Nobody was tracking nationally. His work in Texas made it very clear that this thing was nip and tuck all the way through the general. And that's Last not how Friday. I think a lot of people who don't know that's the right. history, they figure, <laughs> oh, you got Lyndon Johnson, you got Texas. But he was just a oh, senator. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, we called them the people who pronounce Kennedy as two syllables. Ah, Kendi. Kendi. They were coming into their own in Texas. It hadn't turned Republican yet. It wouldn't for another generation. But it was starting to. And there's no question it was nip and tuck all the way through the election. Last Friday before the election broke, mm-hmm. after Johnson's celebrated uh, train trip through, I think, seven of the 11 Confederate states, very successful trip, by the way. Uh, he comes back to Dallas for a dinner at the uh, lovely Adolphus Hotel. And there was a right-wing Republican congressman in Dallas who had some, was a little infamous just before the assassination because the same thing happened at the same hotel with Adlai Stevenson. His name was Bruce Alger. He had a crowd of demonstrators some of them women in mink coats, by the way, <laughs> uh, yelling and screaming at Johnson and his wife, including throwing some things and in a couple cases spitting. Johnson, being no dummy, uh, made his entrance through the lobby of the hotel just as slow as he could make it, which made the visual impact of the demonstrators that much greater. 
and it was a colossal story in Texas for the next three days. And uh, people from Texas, whose memories we encountered, uh, felt very strongly that that's what nudged Kennedy over the top in Texas. I think the margin was 40-something thousand votes, and people are still trying to prove it was fraud, but they haven't yet. Yeah, you and, get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, you gotta you got to be willing to shoulder the burden of proof, just mm-hmm. like prosecutors at the time. And if you can come up with the goods, God bless you, but if you can't, you got to at least acknowledge that you don't have the evidence. But the cons- the political consensus is that that extremely ugly incident in the Adolphus Hotel may have tipped a close election Kennedy's way in Texas. Because there was sympathy for him after this. That's basically what it came down well, to. Don't be rude. Uh, and what happened um, in the Adolphus Hotel with regard to Texas is magnified several times on the other side with regards to African Americans. When you look at what Kennedy and his brother did for Martin Luther King and the clink in Georgia, compared to what Nixon didn't do, right? That's a, these are two incidents that more than all the talk about Chicago or the the the, the precincts yeah. in the in the hill country of Texas. You know, these are things yeah. that drove <laughs> the election, or or even uh, the debates, which is the standard narrative well, uh, of it. Yeah, uh, that's another subject that needs to be studied much more intently. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe we need to rethink the, what's come down over the last uh, 60 years as the basic uh, uh, story of what the debates were. I think it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. Kennedy looked fantastic. He sounded fantastic. And as we put it, Nixon looked like he'd been sleeping on the street for a week. However... Uh, we discovered one thing that I don't think had been discovered before, and that is every morning after each of the four debates, Lou Harris sent his army around the country out to do polling. And in those days, polling meant knocking on doors and actually talking to people. And they would interview all day and into the next evening, and then he'd stay up all night and do his reports. And on the first debate, what, what Mr. Harris discovered was that, yes, the public thought Kennedy looked better by a lot. The public also thought Kennedy was far more effective than Nixon during the debate. But he also found that it barely nudged the needle in terms of the horse race. And that's the missing part that I think has been forgotten. Nixon wasn't that bad in terms of what he said. And he got better as the debates went on. Um, You know, there's uh, a lot of people have noticed that uh, some big-time Republicans, apparently including uh, President Eisenhower himself, thought Nixon was an idiot agreeing to the debates. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, yes, it was. Uh, didn't work out well for him, and it was such a novel that, thing. And Well, that the only thing that would happen is that Kennedy's uh, image, if you will, of uh, as a plausible president would only be enhanced, mm-hmm. which is exactly what happened. But not enough to make the horse race look definitive at the end. This was a divided country. There were more people in smaller towns and rural communities in America in 1960 than there are today. 
the country had some economic problems, but they weren't disastrous. The Cold War was the Cold War. It was a very dangerous period. It was, if you think about it, entirely plausible to take the position, hey, let's not take a flyer on this kid. Let's stick with basically what we've got. And that held Nixon up very well all the way through the general election. We described it as um, a couple of guys on a teeter-totter that was balanced as Labor Day arrived. And the thing never budged one direction or the other by more than an inch or two until Election Day. And so <clears throat> to view the debates as simply an unalloyed triumph for John Kennedy is to miss the point. He was desperate to make sure the public never thought of him as a, as a green kid uh, that they shouldn't trust to go talk to Khrushchev. Right. Um, and the debates helped present him as plausible. Um, that much is clear. It's not as clear, I think, that Nixon gave the other side of this argument pretty well. And he may have won one particular exchange over how we should respond with regard to a couple of tiny islands off the Chinese coast. Kamoy and Matsu. Um, but on the other hand, Kennedy got him between the eyes uh, uh, as a cold warrior on, of all things, the issue of Cuba. Um, but the debates were not entirely one-sided. Um, and I think uh, it's better to view them as watershed events politically. It established something that Nixon was able to avoid when he was president. But the minute Nixon was gone, we've had this unbreakable tradition for 40 years that this happens in every general election, and I can't see it not continuing. But the idea that, that uh, all good and Nixon all bad misses several very important points. Oh, yes. I, I, I do tend to think that 1960 general, you could almost look at it as just a very typical, you know, the Kennedy-Johnson ticket brought in the old Democratic coalition, one more states, uh-huh. particularly southern right. states, that I think if you really add up uh, Kennedy's electoral vote total, his his points are coming from, uh, his, his electoral votes are coming from southern states and uh, that they would well, not get again in a lot of cases. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, it, it's, it, it is obscured a little bit by the dimensions of Barry Goldwater's landslide loss. But by 1968, what you're talking about was beginning to become apparent, and it was reality by the 1970s. Uh, so the southern states were critical, though, um, uh, you know, as long as one is careful, I, I, I'm happy to fall back on what we discovered was Bob Kennedy's position, and that is that they could never have won without Johnson. That sounds about right. Um, well, the uh, the book that we're discussing is The Road to Camelot, Inside JFK's Five-Year Campaign by Thomas Oliphant and Curtis Wilkie. It is published by Simon & Schuster. I highly recommend it. My guest is Tom Oliphant, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, a political reporter at the Boston Globe. 
Tom, if people want more information about you, is there a place they can go? Or God, I don't have an ego, Bruce. <laughs> well, we'll send them to... I'm, uh... I'm, Nor- I'm Norwegian-American, and they excise your ego at birth. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. We can, uh, we'll have a link uh, to the book uh, on the on the podcast website at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. As we're airing this episode now, this book is available, so we'll have a, a link. You can go to our website, get yourself a copy. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. It was my great pleasure, and thanks for your hospitality, Bruce. I certainly want to thank Thomas Oliphant for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Great discussion about JFK and his run for the presidency. His book is The Road to Camelot, inside JFK's five-year campaign. As we promised, there is a link to that book on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics website at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. A reminder about the premium website for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. It can be as low as $2 a month, other memberships more. You get bonus episodes, and I'll be discussing my interview with Thomas Oliphant more and more about JFK and his image at 100 years. I want to thank you for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.